Hello, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This one is part six of a series called Me Speak Babel, also subtitled as The Gate of God. We now join our fallen world already in progress. As I mentioned, the story of Babel can read like a fable or a just-so folktale to explain where languages and nations come from, but there is far more in this brief story than what the literal reading offers. I've said it before, literalism kills. Uh, that type of fundamentalist reading will slam the door on modern readers getting anything out of the Bible as it did for me for years. Every story and every verse must be read using what's called the four senses of scripture to even get started on unpacking the meaning. Uh, these senses, these four senses are the literal meaning, the allegorical meaning, the moral, and lastly, what is known as the anagogical or how it relates to Christ. So if you're just stopping on literal, you're not going to get very much out of it. Those who stop on the literal reading think uh, the earth is off. Uh, they often think the earth is 6,000 years old because if you go and do the math on the genealogies and things, you'll calculate it back and that's what it'll come to. And now let me pause to say, you can go ahead and believe the earth is 6,000 years old because it really doesn't matter for your daily life. And there are many people of faith who do have that, do hold that. Um, you can also believe the earth is flat if you want, and it won't change much in your real life. Um, the church doesn't say you cannot believe those things, but if you only use one of these four senses, the literal sense to read scripture, you will miss out on an awful lot. So in addition, uh, faith and reason are the two wings that make us fly, as uh, St. John Paul II famously said. So it's best to take in what reason, including science, has learned so that you don't flap in circles with only one wing. Those arguing purely for reason versus those arguing purely for faith is the battle of two flocks of birds flying in circles due to their single-wingedness. Uh, you may get what you need with the literal reading, but it's like looking at a two-dimensional picture, and if you use all four senses of scripture, it suddenly becomes three-dimensional, more alive, and real than anything uh, the company Meta can fake with a virtual reality headset, uh, since that is where we are headed. Um, I think, uh, actually, Facebook and Meta are taking us back to a very two-dimensional world where they're thinking it's three, uh, but that's We'll figure that out as we go, I guess. But this is why study Bibles are important for these four senses of Scripture. The footnotes help a great deal in getting at the literal, allegorical, moral, and Christ-facing points um, of what you're reading. My recommendations are the Word on Fire Bible. Another one's the Navarre Bible. There's the Ignatian, Ignatius Study Bible. And there are others. But if you struggle to read the Bible... Uh, and you want to heave it across the room uh, because it's hard to read and you don't know what's going on or it's ridiculous or it's too ancient or there's too much violence, you may want to try one of those study Bibles and read the notes as you go. There will be difficult passages to your modern ears, but that's good. Uh, that's where you can put a question mark in, on, a, on the page and come back to it. Um, I, have, I have learned more from the hard sayings than from the easy parts, and there's actually a book called Hard Sayings by Trent Horn, that can help you through some of those as well. Now, the bad news. Even if you read with the four senses of scripture and use a study Bible, you will hit dead ends because of translation issues on specific words. And so now I wanna talk about one of those words, which is Gentiles. A major point of understanding that I whiffed on for years was that the Gentiles refers to 
the nations. Um, while this may seem ins insignificant, I believe it makes an enormous difference to our modern ears. The origin of the nations came from the scattering event in the Tower of Babel story. Uh, but when Jesus is alive, he speaks of the Gentiles, and St. <clears throat> Paul often talks of the Gentiles, and different translations, some might say nations, some might say Gentiles. But my mind always just assumed that the Gentiles pretty much meant the Romans. Um, when really the Gentiles means all nations, and that would include like Ethiopia and Egypt and Libya and the old clans of the Old Testament, like the Elamites and the Amalekites. And so I can start to see how the event at Babel overarches the Bible as a whole when I start thinking of Gentiles as instead thinking of it as the nations. So this event at Babel speaks to a larger theme than just scattered tongues. Uh, Rome is just the dominant nation at the time Christ is born, but there are many other Romes along the way that ram into the nation of Israel right up to today. So obviously we have linguistics and anthropology and archaeology to help us understand where languages and nations come from. Uh, we know of the Indus River Valley and of Mesopotamia and of Mesoamerica, and we have uh, great programs at our universities of linguistics and philology. We have lots of scholarship and science to help us with those things, and I'm very glad that we do. Thank goodness for the Enlightenment, as I often pick on it here, as they spent 200 years finding reasons to deny the Bible that are oddly, repeatedly confirming events of the Bible, as I mentioned with the flood story, um, mitochondrial Eve. We keep coming across these things that actually are actually shoring up parts of Genesis rather than tearing them down. Um, science itself seems to be working in mysterious ways, you might say. But I do not go to the book of Genesis for science, and I don't know why anyone would. Um, yes, the Big Bang, Bang fits right in there very well with Let There Be Light, but to expect Genesis to fit with modern linguistics is ridiculous, and it blocks readers from seeing the deeper wisdom of these words. Um, I go to scripture for understanding the soul, and if I really want to know how one language morphed from one place to the next, I would enroll in college courses for that uh, purpose. The key to remember is that the wisdom of Genesis is about the spiritual and physical world, whereas the finite studies of scientific research remain in the physical nature, the natural, um, not the supernatural, obviously, it's two different things. So science is, is sort of stuck in this world by design because that's what it studies. Science, when done correctly, does not attempt to build a gate to God, but focuses on observable nature and repeatable experiments. That is its strength and its reason for existence and why it's so incredibly useful for us in this world. Um, so now let me go back to the words Gentiles and nations. What the outcome of Babel is describing is our constant state of tension that we have in the world between nations. Every time the word Gentiles or nations is used, it's referring to this scattering of people, this tribalism. Um, the separation of languages leads to separated groups of people who misunderstand each other. Um, and if you've ever never been in a room where everyone else is speaking a different language than you and suddenly they start laughing, um, you, well, if you've, if you've been in that situation, you know what it's like. Are they talking about me? What, is they, what are they laughing at? You know, and unless you have a translator there, you'll have no idea. Um, misunderstanding leads to fear, and fear leads to, oh, hell, let's just let Yoda say it. <clears throat> Yoda said in one of the movies, 
Fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Um, I wanted to use the Yoda voice there, but I don't think I can pull it off. So, But you nailed it, Yoda. You nailed it. <clears throat> uh, that's what the Bible is telling us here, because the Tower of Babel is the third fall of man. It maybe is the fourth fall. Um, there's, there's definitely a sexual fall of man that, that happens with the Nephilim story, but I'll never finish this, this about the Tower of Babel if I add that one in here as well. So I'm sticking with three falls for now. There's the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, Cain and Abel when Cain kills um, his brother, and then Babel, the fall at the Tower of Babel. This third fall is the origin story of the separation of peoples and the confusion that drives a wedge between people is that inability to understand one another um, communication breakdown. Pride swells up quickly when misunderstanding gives offense and between peoples or nations, this is the cause of violence and war, um, not to mention wanting someone else's resources. So envy and wrath and all of those things come in as well, not just pride. So uh, <clears throat> we still have the common language, however. And in this series, I'm talking about what is the common language, um, not English or French or whatever. There's a common language that we all speak, and it's not the language of love, um, at least not initially. The common language did not go away when the people were scattered. So in the post-Babel world, we still understand competition and greed and envy and anger. We still know that uh, what Benjamin Franklin said, God helps those who help themselves. And whether we say that in Akkadian or Greek or English, it means go get what you, what you want. Um, look out for number one. Um, the common language came from our first two falls with Adam and Cain. And if you add in the sexual fall into immorality from chapter six of Genesis, that's how you get the full recipe for disaster that leads to the great flood. Um, all those things leading up to the flood are like baking a, a explosive cake <laughs> that just explodes or uh, drowns, I guess, in the flood. And that's when the world gets reset. Um, truly, even now you hear a lot of people talking about the great reset. Um, the great reset was not COVID so much as uh, the great flood. Now that was a great reset. Um, the problems, however, began again soon after the flood when Noah gets hammered with liquor. And I would dare say that there's a fall there. I feel like there's another fall of man with Noah getting drunk. Um, that puts that's puts me up to five falls. Um, and I, I'm not going to go into that, but perhaps we should call Noah's fall a stumble because he's he's hammered. So when we finally get to Babel, the idea presented is that people who work together in a common language can have harmony, or, or at least it seems that way in the story. But a key problem stands in, um, stands in the story like an elephant in a room. Uh, the common goal of, quote, making a name for ourselves is the reason for building the tower. Um, it reeks of the smell that comes from the prior falls of Adam and Cain. Um, to make a name for oneself is to reject God, it's to elevate yourself. To desire one's name to be spoken in awe is a temptation that hardly differs from what the shiny one's temptation was in the garden for Eve, uh, that she will become like a god if she eats the fruit. So moreover, uh, if, anyone, if everyone intends to make a name for him or herself, then everyone wants to be a god. This results in too many gods and ultimately chaos because gods don't like to be told what to do. And this should sound familiar because that is the state of America today where we used to say, 
for God and country. That's like the American Legion uh, slogan. And we now focus much more on the individual saying, uh, don't tell me what to do. That's kind of the new motto. Um, the common language of fallen of the fallen world or fallen man can build an empire, but it cannot hold the peace, uh, nor can it join us together in endless song because power attracts others who might like a little taste of it. Power attracts other people. Money attracts other people. In fact, the empires that have made a name for themselves throughout history have done so through violence and coercion, not through love. And this is why Jesus is so radical. And people, I think, forget this, that this is what G the message of Christ is so different from what's happening at Babel. Um, Jesus' radical self-emptying becomes the very thing that conquers the world. Uh, uh, in not trying to make a name for himself, he makes the greatest name in history. And we, we even put our time based on it when he was born. And that's how powerful he is for, being, um, for not trying to make a name for himself. In fact, even when he does miracles, he tells people, don't, don't tell anyone about it now. And of course they do. They go and tell because um, we all speak the common language. We can't keep a secret. Um, and I guess it's good they didn't because now we all know about what those miracles were. So this rejection of God repeats over and over, causing further problems. And as far as biblical messages go, that is the Old Testament in a nutshell. Adam and Eve's pride lead them to reject God Cain was mastered by sin that was crouching at his door because he failed to rely on God and he tried to rely on himself. I guess he, you could say he followed his heart. <laughs> follow your heart. Uh, unless you're Cain, don't follow your heart. Do the opposite. And uh, finally, we get scattered into these nations that distrust one another and our fig leaves, what's in the garden, they put on fig leaves because they're afraid. Our fig leaves just keep getting bigger um, and more dangerous. So we went from using fig foliage at first, and now we have drones and cyber war in today's U.S. Army. Um, quite a different fig leaf, but it is a fig leaf of fear and power. So once again, pride brought about the plan to build a tower to overtake God. And as punishment, just as we were banished from the Garden of Eden and Cain was kicked out to wander um, in Babel, we are separated from one another and therefore pushed further still from God. So another way to think of it is that God retreated from us for our arrogance and we are in this state for a reason as he waits to return and set things right. He actually retreats from us uh, or you could say we just turned away from him. Either way, same result. So just like Adam did, um, he had fear when he said, um, I was afraid because I was naked so I hid. Um, nations also have fear. So it's not, we have it at individual level and it's like society level or the nations. Um, when, when we build armies and we play games of espionage, they were acting like Adam saying to God in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. The nations hide behind guns and tanks, jets, missiles, because being open to our neighboring nations is terrifying. If tomorrow Russia and the United States said, let's just dismantle all the bombs, and they actually did so, if they actually did that, they would then be naked and afraid because they are not the only countries with nuclear weapons. And the only way the nations stop hiding behind defenses like that is if every nation decided at once, without pretense or falsehood, to defuse all the bombs. And I just don't quite think that's going to happen. Um, now, aside from divine intervention, 
does anyone believe that will happen? I know that there's a goal, the disarmament, um, those talks have, of course, stalled. And even if the superpowers said they had defused all their bombs, they would surely have their fingers crossed behind their back while announcing it. I just don't think anyone is so naive as to believe that the nations would actually get rid of all the missiles. I, I can't see that happening, not when you're playing games of state, uh, geopolitics and all that. Um, that's what the nations is that came out of the Babel story. Um, throughout history, the nations constantly resort to violence when squabbling over territory and resources. Um, so a lot of times we'll use elaborate reasons for wars, like um, Helen was allegedly the face that launched a, uh, launched a thousand ships for Greece to invade Troy. But if you read more history and, and things like that, it's uh, the Greeks probably really wanted the fertile Trojan plain um, that is not that different from Russia going into Ukraine because Ukraine is a very rich resource-wise uh, place. So you can invent reasons. You tell the people why you're going to war, um, but there's 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 reasons of resources and power and and all of those things that are really probably the actual reasons. Um, and it's all also out of trying to get more for yourself, more for your people selfishness, pride, etc. So many modern readers cannot stomach the Old Testament because of the violence. Uh, brutal and ruthless warfare is described in a good chunk of the Old Testament. So this confuses modern people that the sacred scripture would contain so much bloodshed, which is odd because I find this odd that people have a hard time reading that because we can literally watch it happen on TV today. We can watch... Um, we can watch footage from World War II or the Gulf War or Iraq War footage, um, and then we can see newscasts from Ethiopia or Sudan or Syria right now. Um, and then you can watch jets or, or fighting in the streets of Ukraine. So it has not gone away. It's just gotten somehow more impersonal or maybe we're more naive of what it is that the nations do because we've lived through a time of relative peace. There really hasn't been a great, there's many wars going on. Um, I used to say that gunpowder really killed the classics because uh, in a sword fight, you could have someone dialogue, um, dialoguing and there's drama, but there's no conversation in a gunfight. And there's definitely none in dropping a bomb from 10,000 feet or a Tomahawk cruise missile. Uh, those, you know, as it becomes less and less personal, it's kind of like what I think about when I was talking in a, earlier episodes about uh, the dinosaur chicken nugget having no re uh, resemblance to the chicken that it came from. It's um, we've just gone into like a bloodless society and we even think war was bloodless, but it's still not at all. It's, it's probably more violent and brutal than we even know today, worse than it was then. Um, of course, in the Old Testament, there are even places where the most high God uh, the living God that I'm defending in, in all of my podcasts is instructing his chosen people to commit atrocities. Now, in light of this, it seems that the single nation before the Tower of Babel would have been better, right? Um, how can this be that the, you know, we say God is love, but here's these wars. What is going on? Why is the story playing out this way? Um, Scattering the people in the nation seems to have led to a lot of awful and disgusting like butchery that could have been avoided. And this is a huge stumbling block for readers today who look at the bloodshed and ask, 
how could a living and loving God allow this? And it goes right back to our typical problem of the problem of pain. Um, like I've said before, read C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. There's a couple other books like it, but um, that's where you, it's a good start on a good primer, I guess, on that. Um, now, keep in mind that the story of the Tower of Babel and all that follows in the Old Testament is telling us about the world as it is, not as we would like it to be. So uh, the origin of the nations, the quote, the nations, is probably less important than realizing that the state of the world that Abraham is born into is one that already has the nations. So a fact is presented to us. Uh, the world of Abraham is full of warring nations already. And the first 11 chapters of Genesis are describing how the fallen world came to be. So if you want to say this is how the tiger got its stripes, this is how the nations came to be. Uh, chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis, the falls and all that. So if you imagine a voiceover that splits uh, chapter 11 and 12 of Genesis saying, uh, we now join our fallen world already in progress. Uh, much time has passed since Noah and Babel. Now we're joining the story in the middle as soon as Abraham is introduced in chapter 12. And this is thought to be around um, 1800 or 1600 BC. I'm not sure one of those two, but um, living among the nations, Abraham is called out to form a new nation. So we go from Babel where the nations are formed and then God is forming his nation, his people. And here's what it says at the beginning of Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go forth from your land, your relatives, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and curse those who curse you. All of the families of the earth will find blessing in you. That last line is huge. Um, to understand what is happening here, we have to remember that this declaration is the first thing we hear about Abra Abraham, who is still named Abram at this point. We have just left the scattering of peoples into diverse nations, which describes how the world became a bunch of warring tribes and states. And the very next thing is God telling Abraham that he will form a new nation, one that will eventually bring all families under God's blessing once again. So that is the overarching plan. We will all be brought, all the families of the earth will find blessing in you. Um, and that's, this directly ties into Jesus coming. Um, now, how that plays out in the plan now is up for speculation because we're still in this messianic age, the last age here, and how is God going to um, bring all the families of the earth to blessing in you? I guess we're going to find out. So we go with that hope forward every day. Now, every bit of the Old Testament that follows is the process of forming that nation. And it's all driving us toward Mary to the uh, 14 or 15 year old Mary where she will be told by the angel Gabriel that she will have give birth to Jesus, whose name means God saves. The walls between the nations do not move until Jesus comes and really not until Pentecost when the inversion of Babel happens. So Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit comes to the apostles and that is the flip of what happens at Babel. Um, when everyone's language is scattered at the Tower of Babel, at Pentecost, everyone can understand the apostles. So to understand Pentecost, you have to understand the Tower of Babel story, which is why I'm talking about it for hours here. Um, 
just to kind of drive that home, I guess. But however, when Jesus comes, when he's alive, he doesn't ride out to the nations and shout down the walls like happened at Jericho. Uh, in fact, Jesus's ministry is very much confined within the walls of God's nation, the nation of Israel. And it kind of slowly creeps out from there, I guess, during his life. But so in chapter 8 of Matthew, we see something significant happen where he first goes outside the nation just a little bit, outside of the nation of Israel. He heals the Roman centurion's son, who is not a card-carrying member of the nation of Israel, but he did help build a synagogue, so he's kind of in the club. Um, the elders lobby to Jesus for healing this, this man's son because they apparently like him or, or want to heal. Uh, anyway, upon... Hearing the centurion's faith, Jesus performs the healing of his son. So um, his faith saves him. Uh, now this is quite radical as he is now healing outside of the lines of the nation of Israel. And so when we're talking about the nations, you start watching Jesus. And when is he going outside of those that boundary, if you want to call it that? Um, then in chapter 15 of Matthew, we see Jesus take another step outside the wall of the nation he heals the daughter of a Canaanite woman because of her faith in him. And at first he tells her, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Um, this line tells us a great deal about Jesus's ministry. But then in a kind of test, she passes by persisting in asking for help. She calls to Christ for help and won't let him go. She's a model of faith, of daily conversion, for after having been called, she will not depart from him. In other words, she persists, she endures and perseveres. And as we know, Jesus tells us that by our endurance, we will gain our soul. And that's exactly what happens uh, for, with the Canaanite woman. So um, this is a great lesson in prayer and perseverance. But for our purposes here, the Canaanite woman's per persistence almost seems to open the door to all nations or other nations. And at that point, even though Jesus has just said he only came for the children of Israel, he seems to be healing people from all over the place. And no, it doesn't say that explicitly, but right after the Canaanite woman's daughter is healed, he heals crowds of people. And it doesn't tell us if these people were all Jews or if it included those from, quote, the nation. So lastly, to top it off, at the end of chapter 15 in Matthew, Jesus feeds 4,000 people with the loaves and fishes miracle. And the only prerequisite to getting some bread seems to be hunger. Uh, no passport or ID needed. But again, here it does not list out the members of the crowd. Uh, we get the, the table of nations in Genesis, but we don't get a table of the hungry in the loaves and fishes miracle. We don't get who is there, but it's hard to imagine there's just one uh, people group in there. Uh, lots of people hungry. So um, for these gospel stories, we don't get like the luxury of a book of numbers where long lists of names are presented, nor would we want to read them anyway. Um, I can't even read the book of numbers except for the parts where we get into the more interesting narratives, even with a study Bible. And there's probably uh, things that I'm missing because I, I have a hard time with those. But I'm glad there's not the, the, the roster of the 4,000 people who ate at the Loaves, of fishes, loaves and Fishes miracle because I, I don't know that I'd want to read that anyway. Um, in any case... Everyone who comes to Jesus is fed, and those who need healing, and those who persist in asking for him, Jew or non-Jew, is healed. But the point is, the key is to keep asking. 
to keep asking. There's multiple stories of this um, in the Gospels of keep asking, keep asking, keep praying, keep converting, keep changing every day, turning back to God. Repent. Turn. Okay. The origin of nations in the Tower of Babel story is a critical point to understand because references to the nations and Gentiles are everywhere in the New Testament. And Gentiles has to be one of the most confusing words in the entire Bible to our modern ears, just like kingdom is to our ears as we abide in modern democracies. So for me, Gentiles is much easier to read as the nations or foreigners or non-Jews. This helps me understand how radical the healings of Jesus were because accepting foreigners was not something ancient people did. Your family, your tribe, your nation was your, much of your identity. Um, the family and the culture was your whole identity. And even until recent times, this was the case and really still is for most people who don't live online in virtual groups. Um, if you live in the real world, family is still very important and um, there's kind of a uh, something happening where people think the online world is now the real world and they even use uh, an, uh, an abbreviation of IRL uh, for in real life to to distinguish between real life or online and it's just kind of funny that we have to even say that um, as we start slipping into this uh, virtual world and thinking that is the real world anyway um, that's gonna blow up and on its own so we'll just wait Jesus starts chipping away at the walls between the nations. So another thing he does is by accepting women into his inner circle, he's chipping away at other walls too. And in our age of celebrating diversity, we have completely forgotten where this notion of acceptance and breaking down boundaries came from. It's from Jesus Christ, a carpenter who is God. Um, lest we forget, without Christendom, we do not get to our current buzzwords of DEI, of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And a tip here is that none of those are new ideas. They are really just repackaged parts of Catholic social teaching. And the CST is far more comprehensive if ever, anyone ever bothered to read it. Uh, but in our present privilege and enlightenment fragility, we ignore wisdom that was gained long before our era. So we have gurus who rediscover it. That's the thing. We always have people rediscovering things um, that Jesus already told us. Um, in fact, that's why I'm sort of poking fun at the white fragility thing, because um, Robin D'Angelo is basically pointing out what original sin is. And every whenever I've read passages from there, I'm like, wow, she really understands original sin, but she's just not quite getting the full grasp of it. So there's nothing original in our modern moralists except that they drop God out of the equation and they just pin original sin on certain groups um, of people. So um, just to quote Fulton Sheen here, as Fulton Sheen said, there are not over 100 people in the United States who hate the Catholic Church. There are millions, however, who hate what they wrongly believe to be the Catholic Church, which is, of course, quite a different thing. As a matter of fact, if we Catholics believed all of the untruths and lies which were said against the church, we probably would hate the church a thousand times more than they do. The origin of nations is important because it explains the state of the world that Abraham and the nation of Israel are formed within. This tension between nations is clearly the cause of massive suffering in the world just as it is today. Uh, there are various important passages about who rules the nation with perhaps the most important one being 
when Jesus is tempted in the desert, and we'll talk about that next. Thanks for listening to Why Did Peter Sink? We'll be back with more on this topic in the next episode.